we've got a super wonderful guest today with us called Amelia Antonetti. We did do this pod before, but for some reason it got stopped. (laughs) (laughs) So here we go again, folks. Second time lucky. So a little bit about Amelia. She is a leading expert when it comes to all things human behavior. CEO and creator of Designing Genius, Amelia has built nine companies and had six successful exits. I know how difficult it is to have one successful exit. She's had six. The recipient of the 2019 Women of the Decade Award from Women's Economic Forum, as well as a recipient of an Entrepreneur Award from the Kaufman Foundation and has been nominated twice for Ernest & Young for all her efforts when it comes to entrepreneurialism. Have I done you justice in this synopsis. Yes, it makes me feel very old, but yes, you have. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's find out more about Emilia. So we're going to be talking about today, folks, all things around human behavior, one of the important topic matters that you will need to know about, whether it's in your personal life and in your professional life. But let's dig deep on who Amelia actually is. So if you could tell us a bit more about your background. I think I grew up in a large Italian family, excited about coming to the United States, bounced between the US and Europe most of my life. And I was a misfit. I was a miss. I didn't belong anywhere. And I think I started to get very comfortable with the fact that I had a old curiosity. I was overacted up. I was just, I was all in and whatever it is I was doing. And I became a very odd duck early on. So from elementary school, I wasn't like other kids. And I was able to just lean into that. And I became like the queen of Misfit Island. And then I ended up becoming emancipated at 15 to stay here in this country and started my first business and sold it at 17. And so I was odd from the get-go. And I decided to just to lean in with it because it was too far of a stretch for me to try to fit into the mold and the marketing that I was seeing around me, right? So when I was coming through my journey, women really weren't in business. They weren't running $100 million companies. There was no Oprah Winfrey at that time. There was no Cheryl. There was Martha. Those women hadn't come into the modern day awareness of other women. When I started, there was Whoopi Goldberg and Barbara Walter. I'm not funny. And I didn't want to interview people. So I was like, I got to make my own way. And I really wanted to be the employer of people. I wanted to develop people. I wanted to be able to bring people a customized lifestyle that didn't fit this antiquated industry that I thought was really causing a disservice to men. I saw so many men that were unhappy, right? They were working 20, 25 years for the golden watch and then living their lives. And I was like, well, that can't sustain. That's not going to work. And so I leaned into this, this understanding of what makes humans, what motivates humans, what makes a human happy, what makes a human peaceful, what makes a human feel developed, what do humans actually need to excel at the same time of studying data, right? Data science, data analytics, right? And so these two sides of my brain have already always been working for 30 years. What does a human what about technology? What about human? What is this technology? And so I'm just a weird person. <laughs> Far from it. And when it comes to entrepreneurism and human behavior, did you always know you wanted to become an entrepreneur as opposed to an intrapreneur or 
join corporate America. I want to, I won't say that's true. What is misunderstood between extroverts and introverts is this, the characteristics of one versus the other, which couldn't be further from the truth. If an extrovert and an introvert go to the same social setting, the extrovert feels revigorated, right? They feel energized from that where the introvert needs to recover. And so I appear to many as an extrovert, which means I've developed extroverted skills, but I'm actually an introvert. And so that means if I do a big social setting, if I do a big something that's social, I need recovery time. And so this myth of people are more successful if they're extroverts versus introverts are not true. The statistics work against you on that. Some of the most successful athletes, musicians, and entertainers, big CEOs are introverted, not extroverted. And all that means is that they require recovery time before they deploy their energy into the next social setting. And so I think that really helps, especially young people coming up who use extrovert as an excuse of why they're not successful, right? You have to understand what is your identity, what brings you joy, what brings you peace, what causes you strain and resistance, and then lay that over a tactical plan. The thing that I love the most about human behavior is it is the people operating system that integrates with the tactical planning. What we've learned for all this antiquated 100 years of whatever business is that you can have all the tactical plans you want. Until you understand the human component, nothing's going to work. People don't not succeed because they don't know what the tactical plan is. You can Google a tactical plan. It tells you step by step by step. So why don't people pursue? That's all the behavior part, right? That's all the behavior that's creating the resistance or you're married to the myth or married to the beliefs. And that's what we do. That's why I love your podcast is we're decoding those myths right now. Being an extrovert does not make you more likely for success. It just doesn't. It just means you need less of a recovery time after a social interaction. But that same extrovert needs more recovery time after an analytical interaction, just trading. Absolutely fascinating. I totally agree. I write about this in my book, The Secrets of the Source Ending Career Misery, because there is this perception entrepreneurialism is for extroverts or leaders are mostly extroverts or to get on, you need to be an extrovert. But in fact, statistics show otherwise that the most successful people tend to be introverts and to be more calculating, more chess playing, more observing, looking at the human behavior and doing the right kind of actions rather than just swinging from the hip. Did you always feel that entrepreneurialism would be for you in terms of your own behaviors and your own personality type? Or was this something you grew into and became more assured about, more confident about. I don't, I didn't even know that word existed. Like I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. What I knew about myself and continue to know about myself is it's never been about me. I don't care if Amelia, I care if you know my work. And the reason why the work is so important is because there's a team of people dedicated to the work. And so anything that I've ever done, I carry the responsibility with me to have them seen, heard, recognized, and value for the geniuses that they are together as a unit. And so 
I think that what I've always knew was that I was a champion for people, that I knew that there was a better way to integrate people and how we make a living. And I knew that the model was backwards. I knew that trying to get humans to fit into a business model was backwards. We need to understand who we are and then integrate the business modeling into who we want to actually be and how we want to resonate and then give us enough room as humans to develop. The reason why so many humans don't develop to their full potential is you've made no room for development. There's no room. I tell people, show me your calendar and I'll show you how successful you are because the calendar is shoved right from morning to night and there's no room. You have no room for peace. You have no room for growth. You have no room for connection. You have no room. Absolutely. I did the content piece about goldfish. If you take a goldfish, a goldfish bowl, it can grow up to two feet long because they grow into it. Is most people are stuck in this goldfish of survival, of fins again and again in terms of patterns and vicious cycles. You want a lot of You've had a lot of accolades in your time thus far. And for some, it can go to their head. How did you feel when you got all these awards from all these institutions? How did the media feel about that in terms of your own human behavior and what it meant to you? I was just so proud of my team, right? Those awards have nothing to do with me. They have to do with the team. They have to do with the work. And I feel my heart gets so full to see them be recognized for what they work so hard for. I have a famous quote. I say, you may see me, but I'm nothing without my team. And that to the very fiber of who I am, I'm committed to the we, I'm committed to an us, not an, I know that the I mindset is human's default. It's part of our survival mechanism. And so we default to I, but it is the practice of we. It is leaning into really truly understanding that what you think and how you behave absolutely matters. It matters to everything because we are all connected. And I know people try to use that as a fluffy foo-foo word, but when you really study how strain and recovery of energy works, you start to realize that you absolutely are impacting everything and everyone. And when you start to understand how the chain of events happen and how to reverse engineer that so that you can understand what is happening because in most cases what you think is happening is never what is happening and all of those are skills and practices that anybody can learn and i think that so many of us live life by default we just don't know any better and so until they listen to a podcast or pick up your book or bump into designing genius they've never had any of these thoughts that's why who you choose, I say it's invitational only, right? Who you invite into your life makes such a difference in the trajectory of your life because that's where you get your knowledge and your resource of information from. So if nobody in your circle is talking about your future self, future proofing, you know, where things are going, if your dialogue is just about kids playing soccer and the weather and the block party, then you're the fish in a very small fishbowl. And so you have to choose 
what is best for you. If that feels good to you, God bless. If something is starting to resonate in you, your internal compass is starting to say, I want more. I want to get out of Groundhog Day. What you need to first and foremost understand as a behaviorist, humans were designed to develop. We were designed that way. We were designed to be curious. We were never designed to be born and die within the same mindset that we got here with. We are to develop. The curiosity is what bursts innovation, right? Our fall down and get up as we learn is what creates connection and belonging. But if we don't understand the life skills, which we remove those all from our society, then we don't understand what this rites of passage and these life skills are about and what behaviorists are doing anyway is bringing them back into relationships, communities, and into the frontline working of our workforce. Yeah, really salient points. And it's it's so true what you're saying. In a lot of societies, especially Western societies, we're constantly tied up. Just show up. Show up and be yourself. Be authentic. Authentic was one of the buzzwords of last year, especially on social audio. Be yourself. Be authentic. As if we weren't authentic. But nobody's asking, what is that? Yeah, exactly. What is that? Who are you? Who are you? And how do you start having that conversation to discover you? We're so afraid to discover ourselves. And then we wonder why we can't discover anybody else. You're petrified to discover who you are. Absolutely agreed. A lot of people don't know who they are. Because the most important and yet the hardest conversation we can have in life is with ourselves. That's right. And you should never BS yourself. You should never fake it with yourself in a world where a lot of people faking it. So we live in these kind of, at times, individualistic kind of societies of it's about you, me lens. <laughs> have recently the death of Queen Elizabeth II and all the attitudes have been around with her about her service. As to the country, how she put her country first and about serving others. And it held a lot of kudos and respect. And I think with a lot of people, we get caught up where where we're trying to move on from this individualistic culture of competition, doggy dog, into the world of collaborations. Yes. And I came from that previous behavioral world of competition and doggy dog. And you've got to compete to make it if you don't. You won't make it to now people are understanding that we're better together. If we collaborate with people with like-minded values, we can build something great together as opposed to just this kind of individualistic mindset and behavior. Have you noticed that as your work has progressed or what's your thoughts on all of that? Yes, I totally believe we're stronger together than we can ever be apart, but that philosophy requires a different set of skills and mentorship to execute because the fear of being known vibrates much higher than the need to want to do this together, right? Again, that eye-centricness is what we fight so often. And that's why having the practice to say what's really going on here is what's going on right now here an Amelia thing or is it a you thing? And once I can establish what side of the fence that's on, then I've got to grab a different skill in order to drive to the outcome. 
the problem that humans have is they have no practice on saying, what is the desired outcome for you? In this scenario, what's your desired outcome? And then to speak my truth of what my desired outcome is. And then to say, okay, because they're not exactly the same, how do we collaborate to move in the same direction? And then what are we going to do to hold that intention in place? What I encourage people to do, and I do this all the time when I'm working with employers and managers, first, first line workers, is to be able to lean into these conversations because the conversation sets the tone for success, which means in relationships, how is this going to end? When you start the relationship, determine how it is going to end because now you're creating the ending and the buy-in of the ending and the understanding of the ending in a calm, fully focused state versus waiting to do it in the emotion. Part of having sustainable, repeatable success is to understand when you're in planning, non-emotional versus responsive, which is emotional. Because if I don't respond to the planning, then you're missing part of your reward. And this happens every day, every day. I point out as a behaviorist, a man, and we're just using man brings home flowers and the wife goes, oh, thank you. He was expecting a parade. He wanted a parade. You didn't give him a parade. Is she wrong? No. Is he wrong? No. But how many times is he going to do something looking for this and getting that? Three. Statistically, it's three. And then he's not going to do it again. And then he's going to try something else and still not get the parade. But there, in the relationship, it was never defined that he was looking for a parade. Other people, if you give them per, a parade, it's too much. They're like, whoa, that's too much. Wow, that's too much for me. We have to have these discussions of what drives value for you as an individual. What's going to drive value in this relationship? And in this relationship, what are you ex- exchanging in re- for exchange for something else? And that's the first thing that I do when I go into companies. You don't work for anyone. Don't work for anyone. You're in an agreement. And that agreement is I'm going to give you, you your, my time and I'm going to give you my genius in exchange for a paycheck or benefits or whatever it is that you agree on. And if you can't hold up your side of the agreement, I'm going to leave. And if they don't hold, right, I'm going to, the other one's going to leave. And when you start to realize that you are the captain of your ship and that you have full control to negotiate whatever it is that you want to negotiate in exchange for the value that you bring to the table. And if you happen to be in the pattern of expecting more than you give, that's a you problem. That's a you problem. And I help people by doing this, by saying, list the things that you want, things that you desire, what is a want versus a need, and then tell me what do you have to exchange? And if you don't have things to exchange, that's your work. That's your side. None of this is ever going to bring you what drives value within you 
if you have nothing to exchange. And the only way to understand what you have to exchange is by understanding how you identify, right? What do you identify? I identify as a leader. Here's things that I've worked on in order to amplify my knowledge in leading. Here's the thing that I've learned, right? I have these things that I'm interested in, that I spend time in, and that I've developed in the bubble called Amelia. And I can exchange those things. Now, if you're wanting something from Amelia that Amelia hasn't worked on or that I'm not interested in, we're going to fail there, right? We're just going to fail. So if you're looking for somebody who can run a fast mile, I don't have that. But I'll point you to somebody who does, right? And so we start to understand what drives value for us is the things that we're interested in. And when we're interested in things, that's how we appear confident because we're confident because that's what we're interested in. Everybody is confident in the things that they're interested in or that they've studied. We're just not confident in the other stuff because we're not interested in them. And to start understanding how to start pairing this behavior to de- together for an overarching out- outcome that I'm aware of and I agreed to. So that you're not bullying me into something that I never agreed to. And so we're trying to remove all of those kinds of resistance type of relationship. We call it conflict, right? Out of these relationships and start bringing in healthier unions so that both people are actively engaged in what are we trying to do? So many points there. There was a mouthful. I know. There was so many good points. I'm just going to pick up from that. And I agree. I think expectations is the root to all unhappiness and disillusion. Just ask somebody who's married. Yeah. Just ask somebody who's married and say, why are you married? Why are you married? And if the answer is, well, I love them, that's not value. That's not driving value. That's a fleeting emotion that is temporary, right? Without understanding that the reason why I'm married to you is you help me be a better person than I was when I started, that you help me develop, that we have similar interests and goals, that your life's mission and my life mission is stronger together. We, whatever it is, you have to be able to say, these are the reasons why I'm making this commitment And this is what I'm going to continually do into those things that drive value. Because most of the time when I work with couples, the reason why they're together is never what the other person thinks the reason is. It's never. It's it's never the reason. And people are like, oh, I didn't realize I brought her calm and peace. Yeah, your steady, eddy, predictable personality brings this person certainty and peace. That's an amazing thing. But if you don't know it, you're guessing and and you change over time. So when you start a relationship, how you started it and what the verbal and nonverbal agreement was when you started the relationship, that's not what it is a year in. It's not what it is three years. And it's for sure not what it is 20 years in. And so these conversations to understand what has meaning to you. How do you want me to help be a conduit for those meetings, that meeting, right? Am I a cheerleader or am I an active participant? Am I the initiator or am I the collaborator? Like all of these conversations help people figure out what they're actually building. And that's no different than in a company. 
in a company, I have to say, this is what I think is valuable. This is what I think I'm bringing to the table. And the company to go, that's not what I value. And we go, oh, wait a minute. You don't value what I think I'm bringing. What do you think I'm bringing? And so those are the conversations that are missing. And you've got two good-hearted individuals guessing and both being disappointed because the setup for success isn't happening. We're not setting up success because we're too afraid that we're going to be somehow lacking in the setup. So we avoid it. Avoidance is half of the reason, if not a majority of the reason why people fail. Yeah. And fear, fear because of the uncertainty, fear because their attitude towards risk. Do you think confidence or confidence per se is one of the most important behaviors that either curtails us or aids us in our relationships and the success that we have? And how can we get better at it? I think confidence is something that's highly misunderstood. Every single human is confident. I can sit with a five-year-old and he is confident in the area where he spends time and he has interest. So if I sit down with a five-year-old who loves trucks, he's incredibly confident about trucks because he's interested and he actively participates in trucks. I would look like an idiot. I'd be like, uh, I'd be non-confident because I don't know anything about it and I spend no time in trucks. And so you have to understand that confidence, the appearance of confidence is a mirror to your level of interest and your level of participation in that area of interest. So whatever you're interested in that you happen to spend time practicing in, you're confident in. And I'm confident in my areas of interest. I'm zero confident in things that I'm not interested in. And that's how humans are designed. And when we start to release this concept, this myth of right and wrong and pass and fail and good and bad, when we can release from that, which creates right comparison thinking, which is awful, And I can release and say, I am free to just express my truth at this moment. My truth at this moment is I am not interested in trucks. Doesn't make me a bad person. I'm spending no time in that area. If you're spending time in that area, you can lead this conversation because I don't know anything about the topic. We can still participate in the topic as long as the expectation is not that I am going to lead or I am going to be the expert. I have to come to this and go, hey, listen, we're embroaching on a topic I know nothing about. Is it okay for you, for me to be a champion for what you know and what you're interested in, but not the leading participant? I don't know enough about it. Or can I just be a cheerleader? Can I even know less and just cheer you on? For somebody to go, yes, that yes, that's okay with me, or to go, no, I really want somebody who is just as excited about trucks as I am. Wonderful. Let me introduce you to that person. And it relieves me from the stress of trying to be something that I have no interest in being in. It doesn't mean that it failed. It means I'm not interested. And that's okay not to be interested in everything. And that's the difference between 
being interested in something versus being committed. I am committed to being one of the best behaviorists you've ever met. I'm interested in other things, but I'm committed to these, what I call five areas of focus. These five areas of my focus that I pour in each and every day, I challenge you to find somebody better. But the other things that I'm just interested in, I'm going to show up as a supporting cast member or a cheerleader. Yeah, we have a British expression, an English expression, jack of all trades, master of none. None, yep. It's a beautiful phrase. And it's so true. And I think we have to stop trying to be the master of everything. And I think that goes back to sales. If you try to sell everything, you'll sell nothing. And picking up on behaviors is an important element of sales. Sales and marketing forms the business of all startups, of all companies. And a lot of people think, oh, to be a great salesman means you need to have the gift of the gab and everything else. Wrong. 80% of the time, should be listening, actively listening, and then 20% of the time talking because you can then pick up information, behaviors, they're verbal, they're non-verbals, and you can utilize that information into having hardcore data that you can sell against in terms of proposing any type of solution. The problem with a lot of life, I find with people, they have all these ideas. They want to do this and they want to do that and they want to become this, and they lose their focus. They lose their focus because we live in a world where we have constant distraction. We have mobile phones, we have emails, we have alerts, we have social media, and that can fundamentally affect our behaviors. And you talked about comparison. We live in comparison. So people look at Instagram and all these kind of social medias and think, oh my God, all these people, they're so successful, so good looking. And they then look back at themselves and they think, oh, I suck and see themselves as a failure. How does our behaviors and habits affect our outcomes when it comes to a world where we're constantly being distracted and our focus is being pulled? I don't think you can be distracted when you understand that's your purpose. I think a lot of it has to do with the front end of the formula. FOMO and distraction is when you haven't done the internal work of who you are, how do you identify, why are you here, how does that contribute, all that deep work. For people who have done that work, they're not distracted. I know the difference between what's my work and what's noise. I understand what my role is in where I'm at right now in building, developing, and executing as a member of the team in Designing Genius and something that's going on over there that my job is to be a cheerleader. Way to go, good for you. Good for you does not mean I need to get involved. And I think that the practice of quieting the noise without it having a negative impact on who you are. When you don't know who you are, everything's a distraction right? And there's tools, there's practices. I use time blocking. Time blocking is like one of my things that I do constantly. So the recipe for success in my point of view is 50, 25, 25. 50% of my time is spent on thinking, the thinking and really the strategy of what am I doing and why am I going to do that? And how does it make a difference? And does that make make the marketplace? And who would actually want to buy that? And is that really part of my legacy work or whatever? The thinking, 
And I'm not alone in that. You can add Steve Jobs and Warren Buffett and a whole other big leaders who spend time practicing how to think. Then 25% of my time is spent in the planning. What do we do first, second, and third? Who's going to need to be doing that? Who's area of genius, all that, the planning phase. And then the last is execution. And as humans, especially in the digital age, what we've learned is to get an idea and we start executing. Idea and execute. And you've missed the thinking and the planning that comes before the execution. And so it tires people out because they have to fall down and get up and fall down and get up and fall down and get up because they keep executing not so good ideas or half thought off ideas or without really a plan, hoping that they're going to get something to stick. And that's called spray and pray. Success, repeatable success is never spray and pray. Never. And that's why if you listen to and study Napoleon, the mastering of the minds, what does that actually mean, which is collaborative. If you take a look at how big businesses are built, with their offsites and creating an operating system that's between people planning and tactical planning. There, there's a method to the madness on why things build and sustain that you can adopt as an individual. But it always starts with understanding why is it you want to do something and having the space to be okay with what that answer is. Because in most cases, the reason why people are doing things has to do with something outside of themselves. I'm picking up my kids from school today because somebody has to do it. I'm going to work because I have to make money. I'm doing this. I'm going to the gym because that's what I have to do to be healthy. Those are all outside things that are going to fade versus an internal decision on why I'm doing it. I am picking up my kids from school, not because I have to. I can solve that problem 2,000 other ways. I'm picking up because that specific time block is where we practice belonging to each other. It is how I use a touch point to use that commute time to understand what's going on in their lives. There is a very clear intention for that time. That time is blocked and I don't do other things. Now, could I choose to do it differently? Yeah, they can take the bus. Yeah, somebody else could pick them. So a thousand things I can do and I'm still quote, quote, a parent. But that time is blocked for something that drives value for me and it's intentional on why I am choosing to do it. Same thing with taking care of my mind, taking care of my body and taking care of my highest calling. It's intentional of what falls in that bucket. It's why we call it the five areas of focus. It's why we have the should. The whole practice of designing genius is for you to get very clear on how you show up in the world and why does it actually matter? And then the parameters, or you can call them boundaries and guidelines that you then use to determine who comes closer and who gets farther away. And all of that is just behavioral. It's behavioral choices that creates movement, which is motive, the reason to take action to go from where you are to where you want to be. A lot of juicy points there. I would say, and I speak to clients all day long about this as well. We live in a world where so many people say, I'm busy, I'm busy. Busy is a road to nowhere. 
productivity is time equals results. People need to concentrate far more on productivity. And when someone says to you in your life, I'm busy, I'm too busy for you, I'm too busy. It, it really just means they don't know what they're doing right now. Yeah. And it's a choice because it's. If I say I'm busy, that means I'm currently spending time that is unstructured and I'm not even sure what I'm doing. That's why I'm busy because I don't know what I'm doing. With all of these things, it does come down to our own individual choices and the way we live our life. I often talk about a traffic light system in terms of tasks. So those tasks that are super urgent, critical, put it into the red category. Those tasks that are important, but not critical, put it into the amber category. And then those tasks that are not urgent and critical and not important, but are required, put it into that green category. It's just shifting our prioritization because a lot of people, they go, with, like you said, lack of clarity. I think a lack of clarity is to blame for a lot of things. They go into a day or with their lives where they're like a headless chicken. So they're constantly chasing their tail. They haven't got that clarity. They then don't have that end purpose and purpose gets you through those days. Let's face it, there are quite a few days in life where you're just not. You just feel like, ha. Ah, I don't know why, I just don't feel up for it. But you remember that why. You remember that thing you've got in front of your laptop or that goal, that purpose. And it's that purpose and that why that gets you through challenging times, that gets you through difficult times. Because it's easy when you're winning, but life doesn't work like that. There's lots of ups and downs. The game of life, you have setbacks, you have defeats, and there's nothing wrong with losing nothing wrong with losing it's how you then react to it why i call the bouncy bump back that resilience and getting through but with all of these things is environment and within environment are your relationships and relationships are the currency of life so i'm going to ask you a question when it comes to toxic relationships there's a lot of Media attention when it comes to workplace, toxic workplaces, toxic bosses, also in terms of people's personal lives. What has been your experience when it comes to working with clients? Why people find it so hard to move on from toxic work relationships or toxic relationships in their personal lives? And which one do people find it more challenging to make that change and turn a negative into a positive and fundamentally change their lives in terms of their own behavior? Great question. So I think at the root, like as a behavior, the root behavior underneath what you're asking me is that people have a worthiness issue, right? They're struggling with being worthy and valuable. And if the root of where you currently are at is that is your challenge, we have behavioral tools for it, but that's the challenge, then it's difficult for you to show up in the exchange of value, which means you're more likely to settle for something that's toxic. I do not participate in toxic relationships. I literally don't participate. Just like an argument. I don't argue. You cannot argue if you don't participate. So if you show up and you want to argue, and I'm like, wow, it sounds like there's a lot going on over there. What can I do to serve you right now? Because you're the one showing up in a different frequency. And so my only response, since I'm not having that frequency issue, is to say, what can I do to help you 
because you seem like you are suffering. If I then decide to argue, I am saying I would like to suffer with you. I don't choose suffering. I'm not participating. Same thing in a toxic relationship. You have to actively say, I'm going to participate in the toxicity. I choose not to. I choose to say, that seems like that's on your side. Seems very unhealthy to me, but I don't want to judge you. I want to know how can I help you, but I just want to let you know that isn't going to be part of this. I will not be participating. Because it doesn't work for me. And I can give you a million reasons why, which are completely irrelevant, but I'm not participating. So in it doesn't matter if it's a work relationship or a personal relationship, you have to state your truth to say that is unhealthy for me and I will not participate. So just giving a very simple scenario that I just was on before this call in a scenario where it is healthier for one of the individuals to go to bed early, to get up early to be able to function in what drives value in that person's life. The partner is not participating. And so the conversation had to be, this is what is healthy for me. And to be able to determine ways that they can or cannot participate in that trajectory, right? So that both of them are aware of where the active choice is and what is or isn't working for versus it becoming a tug of war back and forth and back and forth and back and forth versus understanding what is going on. I am trying to care for myself. This is how I'm caring for myself. And here's how I would like your support. Please do not put on a movie at 10 PM because what's best for me is for you to support me as I head off to bed because I want to get up at six o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning with the other thing. Those communication points need to be done. Same thing in a work environment. It is healthier for me if you do not yell at me. So if you want me to do something for me, for you, Mr. Boss, and you're going to choose yelling, I'm going to choose to remove myself from the yelling environment. You can, however, send me an email, send me a text, put it on in or off, because I'm not going to sit here and I'm going to be yelled at. And if you continue to yell at me, I will not be working for you very long. To be able to state your value and your willingness to participate in the solution as long as you you honor my boundaries and guidelines. But if you don't know what your boundaries and guidelines are, it's hard for you to maneuver in that situation. So for me, I will not be yelling. I'm not going to yell at you, nor will I be yelled at. It's just an Amelia thing. I will not chase information. I'm not going to do that. If I have to chase you for information, I'm just going to make the assumption you really don't want me to participate. So you cannot say to me, I would love for you to come to the party. And now I got to go, when is the party? Who's going to the party? What's the address of the party? What time does the party start? What is the prior of the party? Do I, I, if I have to do all of that, you really don't want me there. And so everybody in my life knows I don't chase information. I don't do it. Not interested in chasing, but somebody else, they may really enjoy chasing information, but the clarity is what you helps you collaborate with who you do and do not want to work for. So it's easy for me to go into any type of client or any kind of business to say, I like to start on time. If starting on time is going to be a problem for you, we probably shouldn't work together. I don't chase information. So if you don't give me all the information, I'm not going to be there. 
And the reason why I'm not going to be there, because I'm not going to chase you down to figure out what time does the meeting start. Just don't roll that way. That's going to be a problem with you. You might want to hire somebody else, right? And so people know from the start how this relationship's going to go. And I'm okay for you not to hire me. No problem. Not going to work out anyway. So if you understand that you cannot hold on to something that doesn't resonate with what you value, you can't hold on to it anyway. You're going to lose the client. Because you're going to piss off the client's going to piss you off, which is going to be a horrible relationship versus keeping a client to say, I don't think this is going to be a good relationship for you or for me. So I can't serve you the way I want to serve you. Let me refer you to a colleague. And I think that's going to be a much better fit. Client happy, colleague happy. Now the client gets into another scenario going, wow, this project has to happen on time and on budget. I'm hiring Amelia. Because Amelia only does things on time and on budget. That's what I do. My thing, how I roll. So I'm known for that space and that's okay. So I may get less clients for a higher value driver because that's my area of expertise. On time, over delivery, and on budget. Warm and friendly? No, not so much. Not so much that. No, not that nothing. That's what I'm very tactical in the people part of how to create people to execute a tactical plan and helping to understand what those people need individually to do those tactics, right? And so that's the whole work that I was put together for an infrastructure so that people understand what are they going to get. I'm action and result oriented. That's who I am. A lot of people want to hire a therapist. That's a different type of person. Great person. That's better for you. You hire me in my area and in my lane of expertise, and I show up very confident that way. Not confident at all in the, how do you feel? What do you think? I'm not good there. Not good in that area. Coach, I'm a horrible coach. No, do not reach out to me to be a coach. Go through Designing Genius. We have a million and one trainers. We don't coach. We train. Yeah, just picking on some of those points. I think what happens with people is they allow their emotions to get better. So emotions is a wonderful thing in terms of your intuition, your instinct, your energy for things. It can be very powerful. But emotions get hijacked. Yes. And you allow those emotions to get out of control, then we start to do- Or if you put too much importance in it. Yeah. People put way too much importance on emotion. I don't feel like it. You, don't, you can still do something and don't feel like it. I do most of my day is doing things I don't feel like doing, but it's part of the overall objective. So if you're waiting to feel like it, you're never going to feel like it. It's a rare occasion you're going to feel like it, right? If you're waiting to make decisions based on feeling, right? I feel like that should be your red flag that you're not really making a solid decision, right? When people say that to you, they go, oh, but I love him. Okay. Loving him doesn't mean he's a good decision for you. Is it a good decision? Don't measure how you feel about them. Measure how you feel in the reaction to them. Yeah, because emotions is the worst advisor. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yes, yes, yes. The worst advisor. The worst advisor. Because your emotions are flighty. It's never the same formula twice. Because you can get caught up in bins. And I say to anyone, try to sleep on it. 
wake up in the morning when you're more rational and logical. That doesn't mean intuition and instinct. That's all powerful, great things. But it's like buying a house. And I've been guilty of this in the past. I can be very much one way in my world of work and sphere. But then when I go shopping, if I'm hungry, right? Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If I'm hungry, I'll buy. Yeah. No, don't ever go shopping hungry. Yeah, like in the house in terms of offer. Although I do so many offers on behalf of people, I negotiate the best possible kind of things for them. Sometimes on my own behalf, like haggling wise, I can be like, I allow my emotions to get the better of me. So I've learned as time goes on and calm down, get back in your bot rather than the temptation to react, allow those emotions to get the better of you. And then see how you feel, how you respond the following day. So emotions, you need to be in control of them or they can be in control of you. What I would ask is what would the older media tell the younger media? Oh, so many things. I think that my younger self really thought things mattered more than they do. Mm. I spent a lot of time trying to make things matter more than they actually did. In the scheme of things, most things don't matter. They really don't. And so I spent a lot of time in my younger success specifically thinking that if I had the bigger house and more cars and more stuff, I call that the collectors, I collected a lot of stuff. I thought that was going to somehow make me relevant. And what I've learned is that my relevancy comes from how I show up every day and has nothing to do with what I have. And then what I also learned about myself is that I started life as a very simple, joyful child, right? I told you I was this misfit. Little weird things make me ridiculously happy. Like, I can't explain, like bubbles. I love bubbles. A perfect cup of coffee, the one that smells like you can smell and you know it's going to be amazing. That first sip, those little things are my truest sense of my goofy personality, who I am. And they bring me such moments of joy. And I have figured out in my older age that I would rather have lots of little moments of joy with the people that I care about than grand gestures. And what I have found in doing thousands now of relationship work is that most people are really not waiting for the grand gesture. They just want the simple pleasures each and every day. And when we have those discussions to say, hey, listen, would you like me to work my ass off? And in three years from now, I'm going to buy you that big house. Or every day I bring you that cup of coffee. Every day I give you a bubble moment. Every like most people want the second one. They want just moments of joy. And if you can do that, you alleviate this stress of these grand gestures. I've had in in crisis and conflict, I've had to unwind so many situations that were over leveraged, people living way beyond their means. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm obsessed with Gary Vee, who I actually know and I've been on stage with, but Gary Vee was like, why do you keep killing yourself? 
of acquiring things to impress other people. And I hope that as a behaviorist, I can help people unwind that. Because in our truest sense, most of us are looking to just connect. Most of us are trying to share a ridiculous moment that means nothing to anybody but you. And I've started to build this within my company and within my team. So we've got one team member who we love and adore and we send her Twizzlers because it means something to her. And for me, it's the two little kisses, right? The perfect cup of coffee. And when your team starts to do those little things that only mean something to you, it's so personalized. That's why they enjoy working there, right? If you go out to get yourself lunch or you walk down to the copy machine, and you think about me on your way back, I freaking love you. I love you. And that's what's missing from the human component. We just don't know each other. We don't know each other because we're not taking the time to care. And people are yearning for deep, meaningful connections, even though we've got more opportunities than ever before. To ever before. Next. We don't have substantial connections. We don't have that support mechanism, that social support mechanism. How much of those, how many of your connections actually mean something? How many of those connections are going to be there? How many of those, how many of those connections have you taken action on? Yeah. See, that's the problem is you like, you have a lot of knowing with no action. If I know you like coffee, I can get a coffee delivered anywhere in the world pretty much now on an app. Yeah. Send a person a cup of coffee, right? Stop sending those stupid things on LinkedIn. Tell me that you're going to show me how to do social media. I don't know you. I don't know you. I'm not reading your DMs. I'm hitting delete, right? Do something that shows me with action you're trying to get to know me. Because as humans, I'm always going to lean in if you're trying to get to know me because I'm curious, why do you want to get to know me? Like what? What about me are you trying to get to know? And that starts a connection. Your network is to be used not for sales. Your network is your bounce. That's your bounce. When I'm in trouble, when I don't have an answer, I go to my network going, hey, listen, I'm in trouble. I, I don't understand this. I don't know what I'm doing and I need help. And people lean in because I don't sell to my network. I don't go, oh, do this, go buy this and go buy that. I'm like, I'm here to serve. You need a behaviorist. I'm one of the best behaviorists you can team up with. And I want to team up on projects where my behavior skills add to the value. And then we split the pie, right? That's interesting to me. And when you start to get to know somebody and they start to get to know your genius, then they're going to ask. They're going to go, hey, doesn't your company do like digital marketing kind of thing? I don't know anything about it. And I need somebody and I trust you because we've already had all these touch points. That's how you use a network. But people don't invest in the network. They're yeah. selling to it. They're selling and they're selling and they're selling and they're selling to the network, which is behavior 101 wrong flag. Wrong. And what people do is they build up contact, don't turn contacts into relationships. They feel that's the art of working. And I think 
people are guilty of doing this, and I used to be guilty of this in the past, back in the day, is that they're too quick to the ask. Instead of just serving and just providing kind of value, that's sounding cliche, they go too quick in the ask. You destroy the relationship. Even though you may have good, you destroy the relationship. Like right now, my next big, because I've been all over the domestic side here, bringing in, out on a speaking tour, jumping on people's huddles and morning meetings and showing people how behavior is relevant in their homes with their family, whatever. My next stop is now I'm heading, I'm looking in the UK. Because now I want to go see my brothers and my sisters over on the other side of the pond. But you've got to put the time in. you got to go, what is the right event? How do I do it? How do I bond? How do I serve? So people can see it and touch it for themselves, right? Because then they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that's what behavior is. Like just running morning huddles based on behavior, not tactics. And people are like, that whole meeting felt different. I'm like, yeah, it should. So we're introducing something that is unfamiliar into things so that it becomes more familiar as just a tool to call upon when needed. And that's because Western societies and in big cities, we've created this rat race and everyone wants meaning and connection, but then everyone falls into the same patterns of behavior where they're just running at a million miles per hour. Monday becomes Sunday, winter becomes spring, and then repeat, rinse, repeat, and your life just goes wishing by. And yet the pandemic was the point where people had the time to just stop, think, hence the great resignation, the great reset, where people have time to evaluate. Do I really enjoy that relationship? Actually, do I really need this? Or do I want that in my life? And there are people that actually missed lockdown. They missed lockdown. A lot of people didn't because they wanted to get out there and everything, but they missed it because I think it was that sense of we're all in it together. The pandemic mm-hmm. was like a great leveler. It was that sense of community and, right, we're all of one. And people had time to just slow down. That's the biggest problem in Western societies. It's the pace of life. People want to the La Dolce Vita and have maybe an olive a spice shop in the Amalfi Coast or something because they think, oh, that's the life because they just want time to breathe. And the problem is people want all these bins, but yet their behaviors, they all do it like sheep, like penguins, and they all come back into the same mold of having not time for each other. So everyone gets frustrated. Everyone gets that sense of disillusionment. There's so many people that are going back to pre-pandemic behavior. They were running and they were burnt out. They stopped. They're like, I never want to do that again. And now they're back to exactly what they were doing before the pandemic, which means a lot of us will learn this again for the second and the third time. That's the problem. (laughs) We just forget. Yeah. which But we have to choose it. You can't choose to have grand gestures at the same time, you're choosing to have detailed daily interactions. They're two different destinations. Now, you can have them at different times. You can say, okay, right now we're going to go for a grand gesture, and then we're going to work on small details. Like building the company now, we're hitting some, trying to hit some major milestones. So we're working on some of those grand gestures. But then we're going to pull back and dial in small detail and then grand gesture, small details. You just have to make sure that everybody knows on the team what the value driver is, right? So right now, our pace is a little faster 
than it normally would be as the general consensus of running the company. Everybody on the team knows we're a little bit faster than we normally would. And there is a time where we're going to then pull back and then we'll run those six weeks at a slower pace and then gear up and again. But if those communication things are not discussed on your huddles, some people think they're running and some people think they're supposed to be sitting down. Final two questions. Thank you for your time thus far. I've really enjoyed the conversation. What's been your hardest lesson in life? Oh, I think my hardest le- lesson in life is to not see somebody's potential, to, to really fall in love with their potential or fall in love and invest more in their potential than they are themselves. I am a type of person who I see the best in people. And I have to use my practice to realize that's my ego. That is my ego. If I'm making choices for you and your potential, I'm way on your side. I need to come back on my own side. I have my own potential to work on. I have my own stuff on this side. And so I will say that my biggest lesson is that being too eager to jump into developing somebody else's potential without respecting them enough to say that's not my work to do. Yeah, for me, it's not developing the mindset, which I've managed to develop over the last few years of living in the moment, living in the present. The problem with most people is that they're too focused on their worries and their problems rather than actually looking at finding the solutions and getting themselves out of this. I just had to get comfortable with being okay with it, right? So I take people now where I find them. And so where you are right now, I like you right now as you are, and I'm okay with just that and not trying to pull myself into your future potential to just really focus on me being the very best Amelia that I can and understanding with your help how I can best serve and support you on the decisions that you're making. I think staying on your side is one of the hardest things for humans to do because it's easier to see other people's side. It's hard to see ourselves. So being somebody who has spent a majority of my adult life in being an honest reflection for somebody, I think that's my greatest gift is to learn how to reflect your current thought state, your thought state with no interference of Amelia, just your thought state, and then guiding you through what does and doesn't work for you. And I think that the more humans learn that life skill and accepting what is people as they are without need of improvement, it's going to make a much healthier society for everyone. They say some of the most successful entrepreneurs, they're what's called paranoid optimists. So they're optimistic by nature, but they always feel like I'm just worried about things that they want. Um, I've, re- I've really just learned to just let go of the reins. Yeah, It's going to be what it's going to be whether I try to push the square peg in the round hole or not. My pushing has never gotten me anywhere faster. I think I would like, my ego would like to think I got there faster. Not the case. Universe is much bigger than I am. And I have to move with it and learn to understand it and move with that flow. I cannot be it. 
Absolutely. One of the most important lessons I've learned is that as an entrepreneur, or even in people in sales, you like to automatically think you want to control. But the fact of the matter is, you can only control what you can control. So in fact, all your energy and focus should be on how you can influence the outcome. Because you can't control everything. It's one of the most important lessons of life and business. Finally, what's next for Amelia? And what's your best contacts in terms of people want to reach out to you on your socials? I am really focused as we move through the end of this year to serve and support people with designing genius, to lean in with the parent and child relationship, to lean in into the personal and intimate relationships, to lean in between our first line workers and the company. I think there's a lot that's going on there with that first line. And then the infrastructure of corporations that are moving people up into entry-level management, middle management, and executive management with zero training, right? And so providing the behavioral tools that they need in these leadership, executive, middle management, and entry-level management positions to understand people. Because we've gotten so people-centric, I think that people skills and the people tools are what's missing as we come back right from the universal reset. And we really address the complex people problems like the great resignation, we've put together those tools. So I will sit as the CEO of this company as we move through the end of this year and to next year. And then I'll we'll evaluate where we're driving value and where we're actually driving service. So I'm going to stay this course. I'm really excited to find an opportunity over there in the UK. I haven't been back to Europe since before COVID, which is the longest in my lifetime that I haven't been over there. And so really joining forces, there's a lot of really good work that's happening out of the UK right now. Really deep thinking, great-minded people first, unity, belonging, all of that. And so I want to get involved in some of those conversations. And so that's me. This behavior is where I'm going to spend definitely the next 18 to 24 months. And the best social for Pretty much, if you can spell my first name, you can find me. It's A-M-I-L-Y-A. It's Amelia on Twitter. It's Amelia Antonetti on Instagram and on Facebook. You can go to Designing Genius if you'd like to take a look at our products and tools that we have for the B2B, for our leaderships and manager, for the B2C family and relationships. So all of those are easily found. I do Clubhouse every single Friday at 9 a.m. I actually do behavior sessions, live behavior sessions. Basically, you come to stage with a problem and I will mirror for you what's really going on and then provide you with a solution. So I'm really just of service here for the next uh, next moment in time. And then I will probably semi-retire again. But I said that already and I came out of retirement. So we'll see what happens. If you didn't want anything to do with behavior, folks, then media is definitely person for you so i want to thank you for your time enjoyed the conversation even though we did it twice halfway through thank you so much for having this podcast you're making such great ways and it's easy for people to find you and you continually introduce this topic that is still so new for so many people so as a behaviorist thank you for creating a home for us i absolutely appreciate you and thank you and maybe get you that coffee when you next. <laughs> i'm coming there i'm coming to your backyard for the coffee I'll make sure there's the right one so you can get that. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care.